Welcome to the Evergreen Review Podcast. Your host is Dale Peck, writer, professor, and the editor-in-chief of the Evergreen Review. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Evergreen Review Podcast. I'm your host, Dale Peck, the editor-in-chief of Evergreen Review, and I'm pleased to be joined today by my very old friend, uh, Calvin Baker. I was going to say, you know, old, not as in years, but, you know, um, as in the amount of time we've known each other, but I don't know, kind of getting up there as well. So um, welcome to my middle-aged world. Um, uh, Calvin, you, uh, among many other things, you were one of the founding editors of this relaunch of Evergreen Review. Um, you're a novelist, and now um, uh, you have entered the nonfiction, is your fifth published book? Um, yes. Uh, a More Perfect Reunion. What prompted you to write this book? You know, the book was born in many ways of frustration, and it was a frustration with the conversation around race in this country. And in the specifically Black literary tradition, it's a frustration that can be traced back for 70 years. After Richard Wright wrote Black Boy and Native Son, they were both greeted as revelatory books of insight into race and the Black experience. And subsequent generations of Black writers said, Wright already said everything. And Baldwin made the most specific critique only to then find himself doing the same thing. And it was explaining race for a mainstream audience who perform, and this is an even, older phenomena that can go back to, we can trace it back to Beatrice Stowe, we can trace it back before that, racial awakening. And my the frustration was, we have said so much about race, but that doesn't change our society. And the, right, and the things that actively change it are integration. And I wanted to, I wanted to speak directly in a way that the novel cannot, does not, about my about my ideas. Um, integration, um, it should be said, is is uh, the subject of the new book. Um, uh, essentially, the thesis is that the only way you know that 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 America can can genuinely confront its race problem um, uh, and perhaps surmount it is 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 by real integration. Um, you talk a little bit about the history of integration um, uh, in, in in the novel. Do you want to sort of explain that a little bit to readers? Um, what what its goals were and perhaps why it hasn't succeeded as of yet. So integration was the true goal of the civil rights movement. It was recognized by, and this was articulated by Tocqueville, it was articulated by Douglas, uh, it was articulated at founding. And the problem is this, once you emancipate a group of people who you've dehumanized, there exists a bias in the minds of those who dehumanize them. And so making them free isn't enough. Like the challenge becomes, how do you integrate them to the rest of the society? How do you make this a whole nation and erase those biases? And at founding, you know, observers, observers as well, even abolitionists said, well, we can, we can free black people, but are we going to have another nation for them? Are we going to expatriate them to Africa, to South America, to the American West? Uh, 
during the Civil War, Douglas tells Lincoln, you know, freedom is just the beginning. And of course, all those things get beaten back by Jim Crow, by Supreme Court decisions uh, in, the, in the late 1800s, and only to be articulated again during the Civil Rights Movement. But by then, the Civil Rights Movement begins as a call for desegregation. And toward the end, it, right, you start to, you listen to King, you listen to X, and they're starting to articulate more proactive goals. And of course, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 articulates those goals further. And they say that we have to address these material concerns at the sites of education, of employment, of housing, and of voting. There, and, and shortly thereafter, right, beginning with the Nixon presidency and really accelerating during the Reagan years, uh, where many of the people we see around today began their political lives, there's a pushback. And, right, and I would argue that from those years until right now, there's been this push-pull, push-pull with a, a tacit agreement between the left and the right to not change things any further. And so if you look at, at measured sentiment among Americans, 90% of people support the principles of equality when you ask them specific questions about programs that further that, things like affirmative action, things like, right, like school integration, support dips down to 30%. And so there's this massive disconnect between what we say we believe, and, and I have no, no reason to question that most of the people, certainly not all, but most people who say they believe in these principles actually do, because they're American principles. However, the support is so low. And that's the moment we're in right now, trying to heal the space between what we say and what we actually support with political action. 50 years after the Civil Rights Act, 150 years after the end of the Civil War, why, why ha hasn't integration worked at, at this point? Um, if, if there is this general idea of support, why hasn't there been even a kind of you know, glacial movement, you know, which over the course of 50 or 150 years would have resulted in, you know, uh, a, a more integrated society than the one that we live in. It was massive, well-organized resistance, beginning with Senator Bird of Virginia, uh, who organized a group of Republicans, local, federal, uh, to resist school integration. And the movement was called Massive Resistance. And then you see things like Nixon's war on drugs, which pulls the black voting roll, right? Imprisons uh, an extraordinary number of predominantly black men, but black women as well, in just terrifying numbers. And on the left, we begin to perform a more and more convincing theater of diversity, of integration, by which you have one or two symbols, or of, of, of blackness in these still white controlled spaces, or you have a rainbow coalition of people who, as, as America is destined to be, but you have a coalition of people and you say, we have diversity because we have people of color, but now you stop speaking specifically about the harms uh, perpetuated upon black America. So it's two things, just to, to summarize that, it's two things very active Republican resistance, and it is kind of 
delusion or lulling of the left and right and like with these with these symbols and but a political understanding in washington that people in fact don't really support these programs they think that black people have gotten enough have come far enough have been helped enough when they've been right they've in fact been helped affirmative action programs last approximately 15 years from 64 65 to 19 and you do see real gains there but that's nothing compared to programs like the new deal and other great society programs that lift a great that lift uh white immigrants into the american middle class and help assimilate them one of the ways that they assimilate them is by inculcating them into the codes and the tribe of whiteness in ways i also talk about in the book I, you know, I think that when a lot of people hear the word integration, what they're mostly thinking about are, are, are black people and white people existing in the same spaces together. But but you're talking about that um, in the book a lot as a cultural as well as, you know, a, a physical lived phenomenon. Um, you talk a lot about uh, the kind of exchange um, uh, between uh, black art and white art or black artists and white artists. Um, uh, showing how kind of it, it enriches both sides, but also how, you know, uh, there is, you know, a tendency for white artists to co-op black art um, uh, and to present it, you know, as, as though they had discovered it as though, or as though they had made it um, themselves. I guess my question to you is, you know, um, what is the difference, I guess, between integration and between um, a homogenization, between an inculcation, you know, into uh, a single gelatinous, bland um, uh, American consumerist culture? So there are two parts of the question, and one of them concerns race specifically. Black people have always had their choices uh, limited by mechanisms of white control. And so what happens in a society of truly free people, like in a pluralistic country where people share control, and I would suggest that that's an experiment. And if people who are allowed to make great free choices and to participate fully in every aspect of society, and right now we, again, we have a theater where we share space, but we don't share the power and the creations of those spaces. And when you, when you take away those mechanisms of control, people can make whatever choices they want. And that's one of the, right, that's one of the downsides of democracy. If those become consumerist choices, so be it. Consumerism has been a part of America and American life since the, since the 1900s. Uh, will other things emerge? We don't know. That is part of the, that's part of the experiment. What does an integrated America look like to you? You know, one can see glimpses of it in certain social spaces when you're hanging out with your friends, when you are, right, in, in spaces where there's no want for power. We've created a, a theater of what it looks like. So if you look at the NFL, if you look at Hollywood, you see these, right, you see these surface, these surface phenomena of integration. What happens when you go deeper in that, right? What happens when the players actually share power, when they're black owners in the NFL, when, right, like when Hollywood, when the power in Hollywood is like behind the camera is also shared. The same thing for 
every when black educational achievement is the same, when black life expectancy is the same. What do those things look like? I think it's a deeper version of some of the things that we all say that we want and that we create these facades of. So instead of a Potemkin village, you have an actual society. You know, at the beginning of your of, of, of the new book, um, uh, in the preface itself, you, you make the case fairly straightforwardly that there's no such thing as race. Um, uh, that that you know the, the race problem in America is is a result of of artificial distinctions um, made for various reasons. Um, does does true integration take us past this 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 sort of idea of of of, of race as as you know different types of, of people, um, or does it? does it move it to, to a cultural rather than, than biological level, I guess? Race as the organizing principle of American society is created specifically to control black labor, right? To and not only black, right? We can look around the colonial worlds and we see the hierarchies of race that are, they become a justifying mechanism for the colonial enterprise. And they go deeper and deeper. We build our cities so that black people are segregated from the majority, we, but black people have been part of America and the American experiment since the very beginning. A great deal of American culture is intrinsically black. And, right, so it isn't as though there's been no exchange. It is, it's simply that the, the terms of the exchange are always dictated by whites. In an integrated state, if I'm an NFL player, I'm Colin Kaepernick, and I want to take a knee, I in fact can. And no one's going to stop me from that. I have, right, if I am a young black man or, right, or little girl, then I can choose, I really, really can choose to be anything I want to be. And I'm not running into these walls of control from the very beginning. From, right, from ghetto schools to policing to jailhouses to limited employment opportunities. I'm truly a free person. And so integration to me, and just, to, right, just to, to bring this down, integration means a world in which white people don't control black people. Integrating the power structures of the society at its most, at its simplest. Right. Um, you began this book, what, about two years ago? Yes. Yeah, and, and you know, with the sort of molasses pace of, 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 of American publishing, you know, you suddenly find it dropping um, uh, the end of this month in the middle of, um, uh, you know, a, a once in a century pandemic. Um, we've been talking a little bit in the past few months about, you know, whether or not, uh, readers would be, you know, capable of focusing on, on anything other than the pandemic. Um, and lo and behold, um, uh, you know, things have come along to shift the conversation um, a little bit, not least, you know, the murder of George, George Floyd and, and the demonstrations um, uh, decrying th this murder. I guess, uh, first of all, I mean, what thoughts do you have about, um, uh, you know, the pandemic vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, uh, the African-American experience um, uh, of it, and then uh, of, of the sort of, you know, George Floyd demonstrations happening in the middle of the pandemic, but then also in the middle of the world that, that, that you've been describing um, uh, in your new book. Well, and 
I began the book two years ago thinking that we were coming to, we're arriving at a moment of racial reckoning. And as you, you know this, one writes a book that you think has long-term value, so that's impervious to the cycles of the news. You have to be comfortable with that before you make the commitment to, if you're creating something with literary value, and it's a book of nonfiction, but I also wanted it to have, uh, have value beyond the ideas as a, as a reading experience. When the pandemic started, I had this sense, I had this sense of dread that it was going to affect African-American, like black and brown communities unequally because everything does. And there's a line in the book that says, right, if white people suffer, black people suffer more. So that's a, right, that's another, like, that's the negative, that's the other side of inequality as we see employment numbers uh, coming out of the pandemic or coming out of the, the recession as the economy tries to regain its footing. But also walking around Brooklyn, I just had a sense that the summer was going to be messy. You just, you know, when you walk around and you, like, you're vibing a place out, or you're vibing out a field, and the number of people I saw in the streets who had no place to go because of the wealthy like fled the city by and large or were able to shelter in relative comfort. Many people who are living in rallied apartments who need to leave their houses to be out on the street, who are living in shelters, were losing jobs. And you would see these people. You walked around Brooklyn, right? If you left the house every week or every two weeks uh, to run an errand, that sense there are too many people on the street. There are too many people out. They're not socially distancing, uh, either because their circumstances don't allow it or because that there's a sense of nihilism. Maybe they're not taking it seriously or they're willing to take their chance in a way that people who feel they have more to lose would not and did not and did not have to. I don't know what it was. It's hard to articulate, but there was just a sense. And I don't know if we talked about this, but I had a lot of conversations with people deciding whether to stay in the city or leave the city. And I said, it sounds like this is going to blow. And police killings, as we know, are an endemic fact of American life. That became the precipitating incident. It could have been anything, but that's the most outward sign of white brutality. That's the most outward sign of the violence of race in America. And but we don't just police the streets and the body. We police every space. We police the culture. We police, right, we police neighborhoods in terms of who lives where. We police education. We police, right, we police employment. People in tech talk famously about the cultural fit of a potential candidate. And all those things are forms of policing directed against black and brown people. And so when we talk about Floyd, we talk about all these young men and women who've been unnecessarily murdered by the police. Like that policing function is the hard extension of something that happens not only in law enforcement and the justice system, but also in the cultural sphere and right in the in the sphere of employment and the sphere of housing, and very often in our interpersonal relationships, and I would argue even onto our own minds when we think about who we are as people, both white people and black people. 
and I put those in scare quotes. One of the things I talk about when I describe race is that its function is in, in many ways designed to be a psychological one. We talk about people going into the army, and one of the things that, like, right, that happens very consciously is a dehumanization of the enemy as part of training. And when it comes to race in this country, that's happening all the time, right? One of the other things I want to separate are the things that we say publicly. We all know that it is impolite, socially unacceptable, offensive to use certain language. Now, that language still happens in private. That language is still thought. That language is constantly used in ways that are subtle all around us. And so when we talk about policing and when we talk about the words that we speak aloud, we're only talking about the visible aspects of things that go too deep into too deep into the psyche, too deep into the ways that people are socialized to fully untangle. But what you can what you can disentangle are the structures of the society. And if you say, let us put aside things like how to be an anti-racist, which again, serves a purpose. Uh, white fragility serves a purpose. Different people are different places of awakening and on that journey of consciousness. So we have respect for those things. However, you're never gonna get there just doing that. You're gonna come to a place that is another performance of racial awakening. Right? The first point of, uh, the first moment of racial awakening was in fact during the great awakening of the 18th century, leading up, leading up to the revolution in which people began to realize there's a race problem in the country. The abolitionist movement began to grow then. People understood it as incompatible with democracy. We made a compromise. And, right, and the compromise was between people who believed, and you can read this in the Constitution as a document, people who believed in full universal democracy. But even there, I can believe in democracy, but not believe that you're equal to me. So we'll, we'll leave that aside. And then the economic forces, most obviously slave owners, less obviously financial interests that say, we're not going to join in this union if it's going to affect our livelihood. And so a scheme was devised whereby the slave trade, the international slave trade was stopped by constitutional degree in, uh, in 1808, and which was the earliest possible date. Uh, and it in fact did stop. And everyone thought that we're on this inevitable march toward emancipation. Cotton happens, the like, slave rights, so there's more money to be made. Slavery re-entrenches. And but we're still fighting over these things, these fundamental ideas of universal democracy versus the subjugation of black people and, and, and their financial interests. And there's a, there's a want for money and power that's deeply tied into it. But there's also a social desire that's built in it. Because once you, once you tell someone, you're better than this person, well, everyone's ego wants to hold on to that. Right? It's like, oh, I'm better than this person. I got a better grade. I'm better than this person. I have a better car. I'm better than this person. I have a bigger house. So you're taught, right? So you're tapping into this, like, right, this very fundamental 
human seeking of status. And you say, if you're white, no matter what, you're better than this person. And they inculcate uh, first Germans into this and then huge waves of, of Italians and Irish into this. And they do it through the things that you say, but also racist entertainment through things like minstrality, which again, are caricatures of blackness that emerge from the antebellum South to further dehumanize these people. They're lazy, they're lecherous like all the rest. Uh, and, they, and it also happens through black exclusion. You can't play baseball. You can't live here. You can't have a GI loan. We can't pass the new deal if any benefits are going to accrue to black people. All of these things happen. So you see, you're constructing structures, both physical and psychological, to reinforce the race line. And we can, right, we can talk about the race line. What's the race line? Uh, what's my relationship to the race line? Uh, what do I know and don't know about the lives of black people? There's a whole library of that. And so my argument in the book is that in order to go forward, we have to be proactive not reactive. Every time Lindsey Graham says something outrageous or Donald Trump or Tom Cotton, then all the air is sucked from the room and the conversation becomes about this outrageous thing that they've said. We need to articulate a clear vision for the future. And this is where King, like where King and X were emerging for the ends of their very young lives. I think that's where we are now because we are protesting against the most outward signs. Okay, if you take your foot off my neck, it's still not enough. So do you feel the protests are, uh, in a sense, focusing um, not just people's anger, but, but, but people's energy at too small a target? I think the protests are evolving. And I think due to their decentralized nature. Many, there are many people present with many different ideas of what justice might look like. My hope is that it has yet to find its full shape. And when it does, and this is being increasingly articulated, when it does, people will understand that policing, that the reinforcement of race and the race line isn't happening at one site, but across many. And they all have to be spoken about. And I would argue the language to speak about them is not simply in diversity workshops and a few hires, but to look at the space and say, how integrated is this space? So I mentioned before, you know, this is your first book, uh, book-length work of nonfiction. I think it's fair to say that that um, uh, the novels that you've written up to now um, uh, are politically engaged. Um, how do you conceive um, uh, speaking more to the novels now rather than to this new, new book, um, uh, how do you conceive the, the, the political, social, historical nature um, uh, of, of the novels? Um, so there, there are two aspects to that. It's, you know, the novels are, actually, are, are often spoken of as being in conversation with race. They're actually, they've been in conversation with the idea of a multicultural, pluralistic, America. And what is it to be an African-American in a space of many? How free am I, in a sense? But the political nature of the novel is a realization 
can't privilege the right white leader. You can't otherize yourself as so many novels do when they encounter a black character where you suddenly flag and say, oh, now this is a black person. And that, like, right, that supposedly tells you some things, but I'm not thinking all the time, oh, well, as a black person, or like Calvin walked into the room and like, you know, his dark skin like, glistened from the sun or like in, any of this nonsense. I'm thinking, what did I come in here to get? Where are my keys? Removing that outward white gaze and going and writing it from a, a more centered black consciousness becomes very political for people. People become flustered and decentered, and they're you know if they're reading about something, and yeah, you know, for people like, I didn't know he was black until like you know twenty pages in. That's not realistic. Uh, why didn't you tell me that? It's like well, he was just brushing his teeth. You're not black when you're brushing your teeth. You're black when you go into a space that makes you uncomfortable because of your skin. That's where blackness happens in the social context. And then of course there are cultural things that are specifically African-American that are treated differently, but the, right, the political act is refusing to give privilege to a white gaze. Uh, are, are there uh, uh, writers, black or white, that you think do that particularly well? And then again, um, are, are there writers, I mean, the, the list of white writers would be very long. Um, um, are there black writers that you think maybe, you know, don't do that so well? I don't want to name any, any names. I'm not calling people out because, it, first of all, the list would be incomplete. But this escape from control is something that goes back to the black arts movement. We say, like, we will no longer explain race to you. We want to, right, we... We want to engage in our own literary experiments. We want to be funny. Black people weren't funny before the before the 1960s. And Ishmael Reeves, probably the first truly funny uh, black writer. So you look at people like Gail Jones or John Weidman, who are first of all giving equal weight to black English, right? putting on the same point on the same plane as the King's English and putting black people and their concerns in the same plane. And that was a political act. Right? Uh, and I think, like, and I, think that, I think that things begin from there. Now, what white readers want to, want to engage with is often different because they want the black writer to explain the black experience to them. I guess, I, yeah, I think my question probably came off in a very Dale Peck kind of way. Um, name names um, and all that. What I meant more is, you've always struck me as a writer, and I think you know in our conversations um, that 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 we've had over the years, it's, it's a sense I've always gotten from you. You're a writer who thinks of yourself as working in certain traditions and possibly against or outside of other traditions. You know, um, what are the traditions you see yourself working in? You know, whether it's as simple as lineages, um, uh, i.e., specific writers, um, or of uh, you know intellectual literary traditions, um, one or the other. Are, 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 is there a kind of writer, um, a model of a writer that you want to be, and then again, a model of a writer that, that you don't want to be? That's a great question. And we've known each other long enough that you'll understand what I mean when I say it shifts. And one is engaged with or 
want to engage with literature at the highest possible level and you go in certain directions, you rise from certain places and then you reach the, like, the boundary of what's possible in that direction or what you have to say in that direction and you want to make something new. And so the way I think about that, the way I always think about that for myself is I'm engaged with a canon of what I think is good and or what I think is great. So one writer you think is great is Gail Jones um, uh, and all that. And I, I just read Courage Dora on, on your recommendation, actually. Um, and um, she strikes me as a writer, at least in not that novel, not concerned with integration, as it were, especially not in the way that you're talking about it um, uh, in, in, in the new book. She, she is solely concerned um, uh, with Black characters and Black experience. Um, uh, in okay. Ms. Jones in, in this context. And then about, because I, you know, you, you love Gail Jones, you, um, I, I won't force you to name names, but you, you have preferenced um, uh, Gail Jones above certain other more famous um, um, African-American writers and all that. Um, so talk about your love for her as well. It's as much a respect as it is a love, or it's a love born of respect. Uh, Ava's Man is my favorite of her books, so shout out. She changes. And in those early books, it's a black world. It's the black world that created her. She's a woman from the South who's educated in New England, whose concerns become global. And when, like, by the time she arrives at her later work and her theories, her view of literature is one that encompasses a great many people and in her case it's the right it's those i would i would say it can be summarized as those who were colonized who she feels a kindredness with i think that they're you know also those who weren't colonized who were worthy of our respect and can be included in that conversation because it is this is you know the overarching thesis or context for the not book of nonfiction is that we live in an age of global humanity. We are a global species. We have to share this planet full stop. There's no avoiding it. This sharing happens inside of every single country on earth, maybe the exception of Bhutan. Uh, and but if you look across certainly any place in any country in the Americas, any country in Europe, any country in Africa, around the Atlantic, there's a phenomenal admixture. And it's happening within these spaces that are defined by by ethno-nationalism or racial nationalism. And so it's a fundamental conflict of values between the world that produced us, i.e. colonial and nationalistic, and the world that we actually occupy, which is global, and blackness isn't a, a separate silo in all of that. It belongs to the entire field of that. Everything does. And so the larger question is, what does it look like to live on this planet in a way that's equitable for everyone? That's a real question. Like, right, that's the question that all societies are asking and they're asking it at, at different rates. And I centered in America because we have, not to be jingoistic, but because there is 
a deep feel for democracy in this country. There is a deep respect for law and rhetoric of equality. If we can't figure out what that rhetoric looks like in practice here, I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe someone else will figure it out. I think that we're the best positioned nation in the world to answer that question. Certainly, Europe and South America have always looked to us as a place that led the global conversation around race, and, and we've fallen way behind. Uh, the book is called A More Perfect Reunion, um, uh, which, which implies uh, you know, that, that there was a togetherness in the past that's been lost at some point. I want you to expand a little bit on, on, on the title, but then, then close with this idea, you know, it, it's, it's 2020, um, you know, the, the America just went through, you know, a week of, of uh, incredible national protests, you know, and we're in the fourth or fifth or sixth month, um, depending upon where you live, you know, of, again, a once in a century pandemic. Um, are you optimistic that, that, that some of the ideals um, uh, that America has espoused and that you sort of call America out for failing on um, in the book can, can be um, uh, realized um, or, you know, has COVID, um, uh, has, has, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and the sort of, you know, police backlash against demonstrators set us back once again, um, not to mention, you know, the, you know, asshole that we have in the White House. So the title, A More Perfect Reunion, it's an argument or it is a suggestion that union has never, we've never been one people, but we had this amazing moment after the Civil War to be one. And that is where, right, that is where the neo-Confederacy begins. They managed to push through Jim Crow laws, through political machinations, too complicated to explain right now. And then you, like, you get this myth that there were heroes on both sides. And it's an easy way for white Americans to reconcile their feelings after the war but it does nothing to address the concerns of black Americans and it does everything to harm them. And so the argument is now we live in a chance to reunite, right? To heal that essential rift in this nation. And we didn't do it right the first time. Am I hopeful? I'm as hopeful as people are committed. However, I will say this. We are the first generations born in this country, not wholly produced by segregation. And I mean, people born in the 60s, right from the 60s forward, you're not produced completely by, by the myth of race that dehumanizes black people, right? In many cases, you have grandparents who participated in the first civil rights movement, black and white, it was always a, an alliance you have people right, born in that one moment of affirmative action where you see a, a, a lifting of Black Americans or a certain number of Black Americans into the class. So you have them and their children. You have younger people of whatever race. They have no real political power yet, but they have a voice who are less produced by the structures of it and I think they want to go further. I think we all want to go further. Now, can we stay focused on this? 
amid COVID and whatever the next distraction is and whatever the next distraction is, whatever false sense of victory we may have when one reform is passed or two reforms are passed, and we go for the entire thing. That, I would stress, is, is our goal and our challenge. My guest today was Calvin Baker, um, author of uh, A More Perfect Reunion, on sale, well, because if it's a virtual age right now, it's probably on sale right now, but officially published, I think, June 30th. Um, and who knows, maybe there are some bookstores open somewhere where you can actually walk in and buy it. If not, you can get it online. Calvin, thank you for being here. Thank you, Dale. It's been a pleasure, as always, man.